Xtox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing FDA's comments on COVID-19 boosters, acknowledging third-dose immunity improvement, and ALS Association of pressuring the FDA to approve Amalex drug. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sydney Perlmutter, and Mira Nabulsi. Thanks for coming today. Aisha, I'll pass it over to you, and you can uh, bring up our first story. Sounds good. Thank you, Sarah. So today I just wanted to talk about sort of all of the activity around and all of the talk around uh, COVID-19 vaccine boosters. So last week I wrote a piece about how the FDA in the U.S. Um, has been remaining kind of quiet on the issue and, um, you know, is hasn't taken um, a strong stance on whether or not a third dose uh, should be offered to the general public. So in some countries like France and Israel, third doses have already been um, begun to be rolled out for the general public. However, the FDA um, has yet to make a decision on it. Now, on Friday, the FDA Scientific Advisory Committee on the specifically the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, um, actually voted 16 to 2 against a proposal for distribution of boosters of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to the general public, meaning individuals 16 years and older. However, at the same time, they did unanimously vote um, to recommend a third dose for those 65 years and older, as well as other high-risk and vulnerable individuals, such as people with diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and other comorbidities. So the U.S. regulator is not obligated to follow the advice of this advisory panel, but it tends to do so more often than not. Now, the FDA's final decision on the COVID-19 vaccine booster doses is expected to come later this week. So the non-binding decision by the FDA's advisory committee may put a hold on the Biden administration's plans to begin offering booster shots to the public, um, which he was planning to do as early as this week. Uh, On the other hand, the CDC has a two-day meeting coming up this week as well to discuss plans to distribute third shots of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine in the country. Now, the FDA uh, last week did recognize that a third shot uh, may be beneficial. However, um, it at the same time said that it may not be needed. Um, So a third dose um, has been shown to generate a strong immune response. Um, The FDA acknowledged that. Um, And it said that, however, licensure for the boosters should also take into account Uh, the ability to prevent hospitalization and death, as well as sort of the dynamics of the pandemic uh, in the country. So with the increasing interest and potential need um, being cited for a supplemental or additional COVID-19 shot, 
Um, that actually comes amidst uh, rising concerns of the more infectious Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2, which is currently, of course, the dominant strain of the virus in the U.S. And the variant is leading to surges of the infection in many parts of the country with increases in hospitalizations and deaths. And around the world, um, the Delta variant makes up about 88% of COVID-19 cases. Um, interesting, interestingly, um, as the FDA has been working to re uh, reach a formal decision on boosters, two senior FDA officials um, actually stepped down earlier this month. Um, they actually retired, and the two were the agency's top vaccine reviewers, um, and they have sought retirement from their roles. Um, one of the officials is Dr. Marion Gruber, who will leave on October 30th, and the other is Director of the Office of Vaccines Research and Review at FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. Sorry, that is Mary Gruber, uh, Marion Gruber, and um, that was uh, her the department where she was at. And then the other official is Dr. Philip Krause, Deputy Director of the office as well, who did, uh, stepped down um, this month and will leave in November. So the timing, some people are saying that the timing is uh, kind of interesting. Um, does this speak to some kind of rife um, at the agency? We don't know. But I think really the focus, of course, is on what the FDA's decision will be. So in terms of some of the studies coming out that are suggesting, um, number one, declining efficacy of Pfizer's vaccine over time, um, um, reports are saying that antibodies may be waning anywhere between six to eight months. Um, there is also data coming out um, that uh, protection against uh in the context, especially of the Delta variant, that protection might be waning um, between six to eight months and even faster. And so that's why there is a push for um, handing out third doses uh, of the vaccine. Um, according to some data from uh, Kaiser Permanent in Southern California, um, they say that the efficacy of the vaccine at preventing infection with Delta dropped from 93 percent uh, for those vaccinated less than one month to 53 percent for those vaccinated more than four months ago. And for other variants, there was about a 30 percent drop. Again, these things are still being studied and more data needs to come out to um, sort of uh, solidify and corroborate all of this information uh, and data coming out. So um, based on that, Pfizer concluded that there is a public health need for a third dose of its vaccine. Um, although it had announced this need way back in April, which was seen as kind of premature at the time. Um, also, in a, a trial of 300 uh, participants, Pfizer cited data showing that a third dose generated a better immune response than the second dose. It also cited real-world data coming out from Israel, Israel's recently uh, implemented booster program that also shows a third dose restores high levels of protection. Um, so last month, uh, if you all remember, the FDA amended the emergency use authorizations for Pfizer and Moderna's mRNA vaccines um, to permit or allow for administering an additional dose of the vaccines for immunocompromised individuals. 
So far, Johnson & Johnson hasn't provided any or given any guidance about its plans for uh, potential booster doses of its vaccine. Um, it says that it's working to evaluate booster data and working with regulatory agencies. Now, you know, boosters might seem to be coming uh, you know, sort of out of the blue and why now, but, you know, it's important to keep in mind that a lot of vaccines are administered as three-dose series. Um, so a third shot of a COVID-19 vaccine would not be completely um, a surprise or anything like that. For example, hepatitis A, B, and even um, HPV all require uh, and have three-dose regimens. Um, and then I was kind of thinking that perhaps um, the COVID-19 vaccines, when they were being evaluated in trials, maybe a third dose um, should have been evaluated at that time. But then, of course, timelines um, may not have necessarily permitted that because we're talking about third doses coming six to eight months or even a year after a second dose. So um, the, tri the trials would still be ongoing for things like that, and we wouldn't even have uh, the two-dose regimens that we're able to get now. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on all this booster controversy. I've been seeing so many headlines and, and I'm sure you have too. So thank you for like setting the record straight and giving us the facts as usual. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why it always evokes, you know, such strong feelings. Um, because as you mentioned, this is not the only vaccine that may require a third dose. So it's not something that I think we should be that shocked about. I think the shock factor comes when we look at um, efficacy now that, you know, it's been a little bit more time where people have been vaccinated. Um, but again, I think it's just so important to like not jump the gun and continue, you know, falling for these like clickbaity headlines because uh, yeah, it's just how we go down such a dangerous path. And I try not to like read things um, until like, a little bit of time has passed. Like if it's one, if it's the only source of information so far, then I'm not really going to trust it yet. And it's really interesting that um, you know how the voting went. It it got very little support, mm -hmm. um, and that 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 was a little bit like surprising to me. I figured like we were kind of due for a third dose. So um, it's also interesting that they don't have to follow the advice of of the panel either. They can kind of decide. But as you said, they usually do. So yeah, I think this is another. Uh, waiting game for us. Yeah, I think that the concern with the boosters, well, there's like a lot of concerns. I think, um, you know, people, some people are calling for it because they're saying, hey, we're seeing these breakthrough infections and in people who have already been double vaccinated, you know, breakthrough infections specifically with the Delta variant. Um, and that's concerning. Although, like you pointed out, Aisha, uh, even though the efficacy wanes over time, it does seem to still be very effective at preventing hospitalization and death, which yeah. is sort of like the main thing. Obviously, we want to stop the spread. Um, but I guess if you're vaccinated and end up getting COVID, you know, best case scenario is it's a it's a mild infection. Um, you know, my opinion on the booster thing is, yeah, I think we're going to need it. And I think from the beginning, they sort of talked about like how this might look like an annual, like we get our annual flu vaccines, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I, but I think it would be better if, 
you know, there were a, a higher um, proportion of populations getting vaccinated. And I know we've reached, you know, a really high number here in Canada. I think um, the U.S. is doing okay. I know other countries um, overseas are doing even better. Um, and I think like that would be more protective for, you know, everybody. But obviously everyone's kind of reached, uh, or most countries have reached a bit of a plateau in terms of everyone who was going to get vaccinated has gotten vaccinated. Um, and now it's a matter of, is there a way to convince these people who are maybe on the fence about getting vaccinated to tip one way and, and get the two dose? Um, or is it a matter of, okay, we need to look into other ways to, to protect people. Um, and I wanted to bring up that I know President Biden in the U.S. recently released a, a vaccine mandate requiring, um, I'm not sure if this has been passed yet, but requiring all businesses in the U.S. with 100 employees or more to require their workers to be vaccinated or um, to be tested once a week for COVID. So to have that super regular COVID testing. I think that's like a really bold move. And I think that's like important. I think they need, these world leaders need to be making bold moves now. Um, and he's certainly been a very... Um, uh, he's been an advocate for the vaccines, and I think he's been pretty outspoken in saying that, you know, vaccinated America is pretty uh, fed up with the people <laughs> who are deciding not to be vaccinated. I think that's like a big thing for a world leader to say, um, especially comparing him to the, you know, last president. Uh, but I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on, is that going to work? Like, do you think, are there some people who are on the fence about getting vaccinated, but they think, well, that sounds better than getting tested once a week? Or do you think you would just get used to the testing? Um, what do you think about putting that in employers, you know, laps to have to sort of mandate that? Yeah, I think, I think at least here in Canada with them implementing the new rules, you know, COVID vaccine passports and things like that, people that weren't vaccinated are now like, okay, you know what, like, I think we have to, because otherwise, you know, our life will be very much restricted to the things that we did before. Yeah. Um, I mean, like during the pandemic. And so I think, yeah, I think bold moves like that are needed because a lot of people are vaccinated. So it's mm -hmm. like, what else can be done to prevent more of a spread within the vaccinated population even because we are seeing those breakthrough cases like you were saying. So, yeah, I totally agree with you, Sarah. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think uh, really there are kind of two camps out there. There are the vaccine hesitant among the people who are still unvaccinated. Mm -hmm, so you have the mm -hmm. vaccine hesitant who may still have questions um, and, you know, some valid concerns about the vaccines and, and things like that. Maybe they just need uh, some more information to give them that final push. And then you have the camp that is the anti-vaxxers. Mm -hmm. And I feel no matter how much information mm -hmm. you, yeah. you present to them, they just, you know, come from a different place yeah. uh, on vaccines. And so, um, you know, people are talking about, you know, these kinds of vaccine passports and mandates um, potentially causing divides and this and that. I, and I wonder if it'll just, you know, be antagonizing, you know, those kinds of groups and just um, causing pushback and, and more conflict. It's needed. I totally agree because, mm -hmm. you know, that this is one of the only, this is, an important tool to help us out of the pandemic. And I, I really wish, you know, people would see that um, people who are still or uh, unvaccinated and pushing against the vaccines. But um, 
I don't know. You know, I'm not sure coercion is always the way. Um, you know, it might just create more animosity, but uh, we'll mm. see what happens with it. Yeah, very interesting to see um, Joe Biden's plan here, especially given the climate in America mm-hmm. um, around the vaccines. So, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that, um, you know, that idea of, of equitable access to the vaccine is another thing That's here, another right? Thing, and yeah. so it seems a little questionable to be saying, okay, we've all gotten two doses, like, can I please get another one before someone in a different country, you know, has even had access to the first one. So I know that's another complicating factor coming into this um, that I I think is being paid attention to. uh, But I don't know exactly how much, you know, you read about some of the um, supplies being donated to these COVAX facilities. But then on the other hand, uh, you also read about certain clinics in certain areas with a a lower vaccine uptake rate, um, you know, dumping wasted doses, expired doses, which seems like insane to think about. There's areas where people would want that. I mean, it's like similar to, you know, food waste, that idea of like, look at how much food we're throwing out and there are people who don't have any. Like, how is that? Has that make any sense? You know what I mean? How do we get these doses to the people who actually want them then? Um, but it's like we've talked about before. It's just like a giant logistical uh, issue as well. So I think that the, that they're going to be necessary. I think it'd be better to get more people vaccinated and more people around the world vaccinated. Maybe first. I think I agree with the idea of the booster for people who like really definitely need it now. Like you were saying, Aisha, the like um, people who are immunocompromised that didn't respond very well to their first few doses, that sort of thing. I think they should be prioritized. Uh, but certainly if, if uh, the U.S. follows in the footsteps of other countries, I mean, you look at the U.K. and I think everybody over a certain age just being offered a booster now, regardless of like health status and that yeah, sort of thing. Right. Um, and I think it'll only, you know, kind of go from there. So, um, yeah, interesting to see how different governments are kind of like handling this booster question too. Yeah. And with respect to global vaccine equity, the WHO, like it's been adamant throughout all of this booster talk and it still remains uh, strong on its stance about, um, you know, not having um, third doses being distributed to to the general public at mm-hmm. this point, especially given that some countries, you know, uh, still don't have uh, their populations uh, fully vaccinated with the two doses. So um, they're remaining steadfast in, in their kind of stance that uh, we don't need third doses right now. Uh, let's get everybody else around the world yeah. fully vaccinated, and then we'll have those kinds of conversations. And it was very surprising to me. I was talking to somebody to somebody in Morocco. They they didn't get any Pfizer um, vaccine doses yet. Wow. Um, I think they just have the Chinese vaccines or something. Hmm. And I was pretty shocked to to hear that. I was like, this is a you know a real issue. So. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how things go moving forward. And also interesting, you brought up the UK. Uh, I know we're talking about a couple of things here, but um, I think they decided against vaccine mandates. And I wonder how things are, are going there with vaccine uptake. It seems like, I don't know the numbers, but, um, you know, they've had pretty successful campaigns um, and uptakes. So I think they have a pretty high level of their um, population that's vaccinated. Although I know, I I mean, I have, I have family there and I know um, a lot of their like, uh, 
uh, personal protective equipment type stuff, like that's not being mm. required anymore. So you don't need to wear a mask to go into the grocery store. And they've even taken down the like, um, you know, mm-hmm. thin plastic like barriers between you the and the cashier and stuff. Things. That yeah. seems a little premature, <laughs> I think, to me. But um, seems like they're just like really trying to get get back to normal. Um, yeah. But again, it's just yeah, it's so I think confusing for everyone to see how different governments are doing this. And in a, in a different time, you know, like pre-internet, when maybe we wouldn't know what was going on all over the world every second so of true. the day. It might have been maybe easier to deal with, honestly, but it's it's crazy to see, yeah, how, how things are working around the world right now and, you know, thinking, why aren't we doing that? Or, whoa, I'm glad we're not doing that. I mean, I think there's just a lot of information. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, moving on to another piece, um, some more information and some more controversy <laughs> um, potentially here as well. So the ALS Association is pushing for rapid or speedy FDA approval of Amelix Pharmaceuticals candidate drug AMX0035 for the treatment of ALS. Now, this advocacy group, if you remember a few years ago, um, got pretty well known for the ice bucket challenge that it spearheaded. Um, And that, of course, was a fundraising event or fundraising initiative that garnered international attention a couple of years ago. Now, this time, the advocacy group is backing this drug that they believe will significantly benefit ALS patients. Now, however, the FDA um, has been a bit hesitant or kind of going back and forth on its approval. So back in April, um, just like going back to sort of how this story is unfolding, um, it had actually asked for a placebo-controlled phase three study for the drug. And this upset the ALS Association. However, recently the FDA reevaluated things and took back that request. And it has now agreed to only accept phase two trial data for evaluating Amelix's drug application. Now, some see that this kind of backtracking or backpedaling by the FDA um, could maybe trigger the same type of controversy that Biogen's Adjuhelm um, for Alzheimer's recently became embroiled in after it received uh, a rather quick FDA approval uh, for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease without demonstration of clear clinical benefit of the drug um, in more severe uh, cases or more severe forms of the disease. Um, So, you know, the idea is could this, could that approval have set a precedent for future drug approvals, particularly those for diseases with limited treatment options and an unmet need. And we're seeing this right now with ALS. So the ALS Association actually cited the rapid approval of Adjuhelm and the flexible regulatory um, approval process that the FDA took for it. And it's saying, well, this is something that should be extended to this ALS drug as well. Now, the ALS Association has been lobbying the drug for the past year, uh, and that may have contributed to the FDA's sort of change of heart on the clinical data requirements. So the group is asking for its speedy uh, approval and recently submitted a petition of 50,000 signatures in support of its request. Um, The advocacy group also held a meeting in May called the We Can't Wait Action Meeting. 
and this included people, uh, patients with ALS, and these patients had, uh, people had the chance to speak directly to FDA officials. Um, so Amalex's uh, drug is actually the first in-class investigational drug that is an oral formulation of two uh, compounds, uh, the first uh, investi uh, investigational drug for this company. Um, and so, again, as I mentioned, um, the ALS Association brought up the Adjuhelm case in a letter it formally sent to the FDA um, after it had that May meeting with FDA officials and between patients. And so the group said, listen, you know, this is great news for people living with Alzheimer's that, uh, and their loved ones and that, you know, you were able to um, exert regulatory flexibility to approve Adjuhelm. And they're saying, um, they're wondering why the FDA is not using similar flexibility for a promising ALS treatment with strong safety data, and that provides clinically meaningful benefits. The group said in their letter that people with ALS and their loved ones cannot wait. Um, the group pointed to the fact that the phase two trial of the drug met its primary and secondary endpoints. The drug was shown to be generally safe, as, safe, excuse me, and questioned why the FDA was require, requiring another phase three trial of the drug, and that was at that time. Now, the group also said, well, Amalex is working with other regulatory agencies around the world, uh, for example, uh, with Health Canada to bring the drug to market for Canadians quicker um, by the end of the year. Also in Europe, the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, is also pushing ahead with the ALS drug candidate. And so this has brought even further criticism to U.S. regulators. Um, you know, people are just saying that they're moving way too slow on a drug that has clinical promise and is being backed by all of these other international regulators. Um, so ALS Association's Chief Medical Officer Neil Tucker was, um, also uh, released some statements and feels that the pressure was worthwhile. Um, as the FDA has been changing its tune about this drug um, for the past uh, couple of years, um, and that it wasn't consistently adhering to its own guidelines um, in some uh, cases as well. So after um, the FDA pushed back or pulled back its phase three requirement, um, the company developing this drug, Amalex, announced that it's going to submit a new drug application or an NDA to the FDA for uh, the, the drug um, in the coming months. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to get your, your kind of take on this. Uh, we recently spoke about Adjuhelm and, uh, sort of the controversy that it sparked, um, in terms of its recent speedy approval. And now other, um, sort of companies and now other disease areas and advocacy, advocacy groups are like ALS are looking at why the FDA can't allow for the same kind of thing. Do you think this has set a precedent? Yeah, I think definitely. I think when you first started talking about writing about the story, I thought, oh boy, yeah, the FDA is really opened a can of worms with approving Adjahelm on the basis of that biomarker without really having any mm -hmm. um, b data on whether or not it's that's 
it's going to produce clinically meaningful results for these patients. Um, so it stands to reason that other disease areas and, and other companies will be looking for the same kind of treatment when there's an unmet need like this. Um, I know you mentioned that uh, in their phase two trial, Amil is it Amelix met its primary and secondary endpoints. So what it actually showed clinical, can, clinically relevant I guess, benefits for the patients that were involved in the, the trials of the drug? It did. It did. And so the safety profile was good and it showed clinical benefit. Hmm. Um, and this is, you know, and I think, you know, the data is is more clear than, than for Agilhelm, you know, the controversy with that data. Mm -hmm. But here, um, they're saying that it showed strong, um, you know, efficacy data. And so, why is the FDA still reluctant kind of uh, on this? And mm. as I mentioned, they wanted a phase three trial, but then they decided uh, um, to not have that requirement anymore. But, mm -hmm. yeah. I think that there's, there's obviously that like fine balance between, okay, how quickly can we get something approved so that these patients have another treatment option, especially when there aren't a lot of treatment options and it's such a devastating disease. But also obviously the point of the FDA is to, um, balance the other side of things to make sure, well, is this safe and do, you know, benefits outweigh the risks and all that kind of stuff. But I think that the way the the market has been going in recent years, it just seems like the like post-approval data and like pharmacovigilance studies and like seeing what a drug does when it's in the real world has been growing in importance. Um, so it's kind of not surprising to me that this group is saying, listen, I don't think we need a phase three for this. Like, let's get this, let's, let's actually start, you know, treating patients with this. And I'm sure the company, um, if, if the drug is approved, would have to kind of, uh, collect data and, and follow and monitor the safety and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I, yeah, I think it makes, I think it makes sense to me. I think it makes sense why they're asking for this. And, you know, um, it comes to mind the COVID-19 vaccines themselves, mm -hmm. right? There's been a lot of criticism in terms of how quickly they received regulatory approval. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we might be seeing more and more of this that, you know, the idea that drugs typically take 10 years to develop and, and things like that. Um, I think with development of the COVID-19 vaccines and then things like Agihelm, and we might be seeing more and more of these speedy approvals, which may not be speedy per se, but maybe we're just cutting out all of that red tape and all of that bureaucracy associated in the regulatory process. Mm -hmm. I know with the COVID-19 vaccines, um, well, not recently, uh, well, recently in Canada, actually, um, I think Health Canada approved the application for the brand names for the COVID-19 vaccine. So I think Pfizer is called Community and and um, the other vaccines have other um, brand names. And people were like, oh, well, why now? And well, it's like, you know what? Like if we had actually followed the regulatory processes, mm -hmm. we'd be waiting for the brand names yeah. to be approved. And so yeah. all of that is part of um, the drug approval process, which, you know, we may not have been aware of previously. So, you know, there is scope for having more rapid approvals and cutting mm -hmm. down timelines. And we may be seeing more of that. And this is just, you know, it seems unprecedented and new to us, but it doesn't mean that any kind of um, sort of things to do with safety and efficacy are, are, are being compromised. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to bring that exact point up is like the idea that the COVID-19 vaccine was approved so quickly that other drug makers are probably going to try and push for the same kind of timeline. Mm -hmm. So then the idea of speedy vaccines or speedy drugs being approved is actually not speedy. It's just the normal timeline of things, right? Because there is maybe, I don't know, all the backlog and all the stuff that you have to go through to approve a drug, I think. Yeah, now that we're seeing these kind of like this ALS breakthrough happen and people are like oh wait hold on this needs more time right it's interesting to see how it's being applied to drugs outside of a pandemic um kind of scenario Mm -hmm. so yeah we're we're seeing it so quickly because i know like we've been talking about it so oh yeah exactly right (laughs) yeah we've been talking about it for a while yeah like with this set a precedent for you know other vaccines and drugs and now we're kind of seeing it yeah exactly Yeah. yeah we've spoken about it a lot in our podcast actually about what what, what should yeah. drug makers expect seeing how the COVID vaccine rollout happened or the approval happened? And I think especially with, with diseases like ALS and Alzheimer's, like there has been, um, you know, it's they, they, there are two, I guess, diseases that for the longest time there hasn't been like a cure and I think yeah. the buildup and like just let's get the show on the road is like stronger than ever now that we know that like it's been done with with other like vaccines and medications I think the push is even stronger now um and I would love to see that like that like this could be an absolute game changer and like it's 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 great news I think and yeah. it's it's amazing to see uh, like an advocacy group really advocating, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and it's quite interesting to see the um, influence I think they have in, in, you know, lobbying the FDA and saying, listen, we need you to like review this faster. I don't know. I, I think that's really impressive as well to like see the power of those, those groups. Yeah, I agree. You know, when I first came across this story, like I was like, oh, wow, this is an advocacy group. And then when I started reading more, I'm like, they're really pushing for this and they're coming from, you know, we kind of think, oh, well, it's usually the drug companies putting pressure and, oh, they just want to, you know, get their drug out. But, you know, here you have people advocating for real patients and this is, mm-hmm. you know, and they're so passionate about this. So it's it's really great to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens and we'll see what the FDA uh, ultimately decides. Definitely. Well, that's the end of this episode of the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X-Talks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.